This week on the show, it's time to say goodbye to the GPL, a new OCI runtime for FreeBSD jails, a bit of Xenix history for you. We have an update by Warner Losh on QMUU's BSD user fork. We run or we look at FreeBSD 13 running on a 12-year-old laptop and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 402, Goodbye GPL, recorded on the 4th of May 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Hello, welcome back to a fresh new episode with BSD content uh, loading to the full. And <laughs> a lot of stuff has happened. Um, we were... Um, Really happy about the feedback we got about episode 400. Thank you for that. Uh, it's great to have you um, giving us such nice feedback. And so let's dive into the first item we have for you in the headlines, which is it's time to say goodbye to the GPL. And as a BSD user in one way or the other, you kind of like this is natural to you in some way eventually. Um, but this article is from Martin Klepman at klepman.com or Klepmann, probably, German version, could be. Um, nevertheless, uh, he writes, the trigger for this post is the reinstating of Richard Stallman. Yes, we've all heard that, and there was a lot of turmoil. Uh, but this is specifically um, about a very problematic character, as he writes, to the board of the Free Software Foundation. So he's appalled by this move and joined others in the call for his removal. Uh, this occasion has caused me to reevaluate the position of the FSF in computing, uh, it is the steward of the GNU project as part of Linux distributions, loosely speaking, and of a family of software licenses centered around the GNU General Public License, GPL. Uh, these efforts are unfortunately tainted by Stallman's behavior. However, this is not what I actually want to talk about today. In this post, I argue that we should move away from the GPL and related licenses, like the LGPL, AGPL, uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with Stallman, but simply because I think they have failed to achieve their purpose and they are more trouble than they are worth. So first, uh, it starts with a brief background. The defining feature of the GPL family of licenses is the concept of copyleft, which states roughly that if you take some GPL license code and modify it or build upon it, you must also make modifications or extensions, known as derivative work, freely available under the same license. This has the effect that the GPL source code cannot be incorporated into closed source software. At first glance, this seems like a great idea. So what is the problem? So there's a uh, headline here that says the enemy has changed. Okay, here we go. Let's listen about what the enemy is. In the 1980s and 1990s, when the GPL was written, the enemy of the free software movement was Microsoft and other companies that sold closed source proprietary software. The GPL intended to disrupt this business model for two main reasons. First, closed source software cannot easily be modified by users. You can take it or leave it. You cannot adopt it to your needs. And to counteract this, the GPL was designed to force companies to release the source code of their software so that users of the software could study, modify, and compile it and use their modified versions and thus have the freedom to customize their computing devices to their needs. And so the second point is, or the second reason, moreover, the GPL was motivated by a desire for fairness. If you write some software in your spare time and release it for free, it's understandable that you don't want others to profit from your work without giving something back to the community. Forcing derivative works to be open source ensures that some 
baseline of giving back. Okay, so yeah, while this uh, made sense in 1990, uh, he thinks the world has changed and closed source software is no longer the main problem in all, uh, in more bold text in the 2020s the enemy of freedom in computing is cloud software oh okay so now we know um or software as a service saas uh, or web apps um also known as that so software that runs primarily on the vendor servers with all your data also stored on those servers in examples include google docs trello slack figma notion and many others you probably could name a few of your own this cloud software may have a client-side component, a mobile app, JavaScript running on your web browser, uh, but it only works in conjunction with the vendor server. And there are a lot of problems with cloud software. So if the company providing cloud software goes out of business or decides to discontinue a product, the software stops working and you are locked out of the documents and data you created with that software. This is especially a common problem with software made by a startup, which may get acquired by a bigger company that has no interest in continuing to maintain the startup's product. Google and other cloud services may suddenly suspend your account with no warning and no recourse. For example, if an automated system thinks you have violated its terms of service. Even if your own behavior has been uh, faultless, someone else may have hacked into your account and used to send malware, malware or phishing emails without your knowledge, triggering a term of service violation. Thus, you could suddenly find yourself permanently locked out of every document you ever created on Google Docs or another app. Yes, that's a problem, of course. There's other reasons, uh, and they're listed in the article. But let's further down, you can find that there's an argument to have local-first software. So uh, he describes it as, my collaborators and I have previously argued for local-first software, which is a response to these problems with cloud software. Local-first software runs on your own computer, like it did in the days before the cloud, and stores its data uh, on your local hard drive while also retaining the convenience of cloud software, such as real-time collaboration and syncing your data across all your devices. So you always have your own data on your devices, and the cloud is just there for the uh, synchronization of everyone's file. So it's nice for local first software to also be open source, but it's not necessary. 90% of the benefits apply equally to closed source local first software. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. And uh, further down, there's more about the legal tools to promote software freedom um, and the various licenses that uh, uh, apply to this. So it's definitely worth a read. So in conclusion, this is also the uh, connection here to the what's this doing in the BSD show. Um, in conclusion, they say that the GPL and other copyleft licenses are not bad. They just think they are pointless. They have practical problems and they are tainted by the behavior of the Free Software Foundation. But most importantly, they do not believe they have been an effective contributor to software freedom. The only real use for copyleft nowadays is by commercial software vendors, MongoDB and Elastic, who want to stop Amazon from providing their software as a service, which is fine, but it's motivated purely by business concerns, not by software freedom. Uh, open source software has been tremendously successful, and it has come a long way since the origins of the free software movement born from the 1990s anti-Microsoft uh, sentiment. I will acknowledge that the FSF has in, well, was instrumental in getting this all started. However, 30 years on, the ecosystem has changed, but the FSF has failed to keep up and has become more and more out of touch. There are extra links there for further articles. It has failed to establish a coherent response to cloud software and other recent threats to software freedom, and it just continues to rehash tired old arguments from decades ago. Now, by reinstating Stallman and dismissing the concerns about him, the FSF is actively harming the cause of free software. We must distance ourselves from the FSF and their worldview, and many others have done so. So now, here goes the BSD bit. Uh, for all these reasons, I 
or they think it no longer makes sense to cling on to GPL and copy left, let them go. Instead, they encourage you to adopt a permissive license for your projects, the MIT, the BSD, Apache 2.0, then focus your energies on the things that will really make a difference to software freedom, counteracting the monopolizing or monopolizing more like uh, those effects on cloud software, developing sustainable business models that allow open source software to thrive and pushing for regulation that prioritizes the interests of software users over the interests of vendors. Yeah, I think um, it has some good points, although you also have to say uh, that cloud software definitely has benefits. So you don't have to teach users how to install the, the server part because it's running already and they just have to connect their clients to it. But definitely from the license point of view, I can see the arguments um, needing um, a discussion here. And especially nowadays that the software landscape has changed, it's definitely interesting to reevaluate those. And could very well be that the BSD licenses uh, or uh, derivatives or similar ones are seeing a push uh, by developers. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, on a show called BSD Now, we have a bias. Um, of course, yes. see where it leans. Um, <laughs> I, I always find it interesting when disc, in this discourse that the FSF gets gets a lot of credit, but then they uh, they mention two organizations by name, MIT and BSD, because of their licenses. Uh, and these are the things that fell out. If you look at BSD, it's really interesting thinking about how the license has changed over the years and how we've, we have evolved in a way to make the license simpler and, and easier to process by a human reading it and easier to enforce. So things like the advertising clause are now gone in, in I think all software, but there's probably some remnants of it. Whereas the changes in the, the GPL um, made people stop using the software, which doesn't seem like the thing you want for a software license mm. um, uh, to the point where AGPL is completely banned inside organizations. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a really, there's a lot, there's a lot, happening now with these changes and it's a very contentious subject but it's very interesting uh i'm disappointed one of these headings wasn't open source one because i i think open source software won it yeah it definitely did and it's more likely that companies will adapt open source software rather than um, a commercial one because open source software has definitely um built up a competition to closed source software and most of the time, it's providing even more features than a closed source would have. And it's also for companies, hey, is a license compatible with uh, we how we use the software? Or when we ship a product, can we incorporate that software? And the BSD license allows that. And the GPL is involving lawyers first, if it's possible at all. And GPL advocates would see this the other way around, but it's impossible to get hold of a, an SDK for proprietary software that doesn't have BSD software inside it. It's, right. it's all throughout. Um, and even if that, the most of that is not um, freely distributable, if, you're, if your goal for writing a software is to write the software, then I'd see it as a victory. And as a BSD developer, I, where I'm coming from here is probably really clear. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's all small bits, but as a whole, it's providing a lot of value to people in big and small ways. And as a developer, you don't want to do all the legal work, the whole uh, studying of a, what a license offers you and how users should use your software. You want to get something done. You want to solve a problem. You want to write code that does something useful and not first start a, uh, <laughs> a law degree to, to understand the license you're going to use. Okay, so next up, we have a, an article from, from Samuel Karp. Um, Samuel writes, today I open sourced Run J. 
a new experimental proof of concept OCI compatible runtime for FreeBSD jails. He says, for the past six years, six and a half years, I've been working on Linux containers, but never really had much experience with FreeBSD jails. RunJ, pronounced RunJ, really helpful for podcasters, uh, is a vehicle for me to learn more about FreeBSD in general and jails in particular. With my position on the technical oversight board of the Open Containers Initiative, I'm also interested in understanding how the OCI runtime specification can be adapted to other operating systems like FreeBSD. An OCI runtime sits at the lowest level of make a container work. The specification is focused around starting processes in isolated environments, but doesn't cover all the kinds of features you'd expect in a project in a product like Docker. In particular, OCI runtimes operate in terms of bundles rather than images. Don't implement the copy and write mechanisms you need for layers. I'd admit high level, higher level constructs like networking and storage. In short, OCI runtimes are a low level tool that usually hides from view behind the container runtime you see like Docker or container D. The reference OCI runtime is implementation is run C and run J is modeled pretty closely after it. Container, container D is a tool that's one step up in abstraction from the OCI runtime. Its job is to manage container execution, copy and write, layers, and images. Container D interacts with the underlying OCI runtime with a shim and currently only has a built-in shim targeting run C. The run J repository also contains a container D shim that can be used with run J. Both run J and the container D shim are from scratch implementations rather than porting run C and container D's existing run C shim to FreeBSD. This is because both run C and the run C shim make fairly deep assumptions that they're running on Linux and use Linux specific kernel interfaces like C groups and namespaces that don't exist on FreeBSD. Writing on it from scratch also gives me the opportunity to learn more and I think it's more fun. This is my project after all. Um, and he goes on to say that he wasn't expecting to write the, the post today but it, it reached a point in development where things were functional enough um, and then it appeared on, on Hacker News and, and Twitter and it, and it got lots of, lots of noise. Um, and so if, if it's not clear from his description, this is the first step to getting um, OCI compatible images running on top of FreeBSD jails, which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, people have been waiting a lot for these or some kind of compatibility layer there. And he goes on just at the end to say, the next two things you'd like to do are get a base image pushed up to the Amazon ECR gallery and get TTI support working so you can have a proper interactive shell. Ah, so this is quite uh, ahead already. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if it's, it must be completely from scratch because if you'd started with just the jail infrastructure, you'd have, you'd have shells working. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I see from the comments that um, someone has already volunteered to put a port together for uh, the FreeBSD ports collection. Yeah, I, I, as I understand, it's already in the, in the ports tree now. Oh, excellent. So that gives people uh, time to, or an easy way to try it out and uh, provide feedback. Very good. Next, we have something for the uh, history people, computer history folks, a bit of Xenix history in our news roundup here. Uh, so this bit has a nice picture of the original handbooks. Oh, wow, this is really old. Um, so the article goes from 1986 to 1989. Um, the author here, I don't see who that is, um, worked in Xenix, in the Xenix group at Microsoft. Uh, it was their job 
first out of school and they were the most junior person on the team. They were hopelessly naive, inexperienced, generally clueless and borderline incompetent. But my work co-workers were kind, supportive and enormously forgiving. Just a lovely bunch of folks. Oh yes, that's the best you could have uh, coming fresh out of uh, school. Microsoft decided to exit the Xenix business in 1989, but before the group was dispersed to the winds, uh, we held a wake. Many of the old hands at Microsoft had worked at Xenix at some point, so the party was filled with much of the senior development staff from across the company. There was cake, beer, and nostalgia. Stories were told, most of which I can't repeat. <laughs> some of the longer-serving folks dug through their files to find particularly amusing Xenix-rated documents, and they were copied and distributed to the attendees. So if memory serves, it was a cooperative effort between a number of the senior developers to produce this timeline that we have in the show notes linked, uh, detailing all the major releases of Xenix. So you can see um, which release came after which and what kind of um, processor they were running on and in which time. So that's interesting. Uh, they have no personal knowledge of the OEM relationships, relationships before 1986. And they do know that there were additional minor ports in OEMs that aren't listed on the timeline, like an NS32016, IBM PS2, MCA bus, Onyx, Spectrix. But to the best of their understanding, this hits the major points. Since we're on the topic, uh, they should say that they've encountered a surprising amount of confusion about the history of Xenix. So here are some things they know. Xenix was a version of AT&T Unix ported and packaged by Microsoft. It was first offered for sale to the public in August 25, 1980, issue of Computer World. I wasn't born there yet, so I didn't care. Um, <laughs> so that issue had a big headline stating, Microsoft is pleased to announce there will be no 16-bit software crisis. Okay. Um, so it was originally priced between $2,000 and $9,000 per copy, depending on the number of users. Microsoft owned the Xenix trademark and had a master Unix license with AT&T, which allowed them to sub-license Xenix to other vendors. Xenix was licensed by a variety of OEMs and then either bundled with the hardware or sold as an optional extra. Ports were available for a variety of different architectures, including Z8000, Motorola 68000, NS16032, and various Intel processors. Uh, in 1983, IBM contracted with Microsoft to port Xenix to their forthcoming AT286-based machines, codenamed Salmon. The result was IBM Personal Computer Xenix for the PC-AT. Oh, yeah, I remember this machine that they have pictured here. This is uh, one of the computers my father had. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, by the time there was a growing retail demand for Xenix on IBM-compatible personal computer hardware, but Microsoft made a strategic decision not to sell Xenix in the consumer market. Instead, they entered into an agreement with a company called the Santa Cruz Operation, SCO, you might have heard about that, <clears throat> to package, sell, and support Xenix for those customers. So even without outsourcing retail development to SCO, Microsoft was still putting significant effort into Xenix. Ports to new architectures, or the main development products, the C compiler, assembler, debugger, etc., were included with the Intel-based releases of Xenix. A character-oriented version of Microsoft Word and Multiplan, both ported to Xenix. And Microsoft had also dedicated Xenix documentation team, uh, which produced custom manuals and tutorials. Oh, wow, this is really uh, nostalgia here for those who've been around that time. Cool, check the rest of the article. There's probably a couple of interesting bits uh, that you might remember.
So does does your father still have this computer? Uh, no, we threw it out. Um, oh. it, it, yeah, I mean, I, that's the first time I saw Tetris on that thing, and you can kind of see that this wasn't really really used for professional work. Um, and it it was in a very smoky room, so um, if you <laughs> the way to if you press the escape key with your ring finger, then you can kind of see why because he was holding a lit cigarette most of the time. And so, yeah, that's all you have to know about it. <laughs> wow, okay. It, it is, yeah, it was a special machine. And I, I see, I ha we have one in our CS department in the history cabinets. Um, but it really couldn't be used for much except Tetris. And I, it gave me some basic, I mean, I was very young at the time, didn't remember much. But I saw the, the very basic DOS uh, prompt and remember how to start programs. And that was all. <laughs> Okay, next up we have a, an article from Warner Losch on um, updating QAMU's BSD user fork. Warner writes, BSD user is a user mode emulation tool. It emulates FreeBSD system calls on FreeBSD, while in, in other BSD system calls elsewhere to varying degrees of success. Its primary mission has been to build FreeBSD packages using user mode emulation to speed up the process over using system mode. It speed up, speeds up things because the compilers and other huge CPU hogs can be built natively. Of of late, it has languished. A few years ago, I started to rebase it to then tip of QAMU in the hopes of upstreaming. At the time, we'd forked off QAMU 1.0 or so. During this time, the then current QAMU was 4.0. I got things rebased to around uh, 3.1 before running out of steam. Rebasing patch trains of thousands of commits is hard, and trying to selectively squash commits isn't much better. So that's where things stalled. All bug fixes to QMUser had gone into our own private branch. Recently, I'd been asked about it again, so I started to dust things off. I got my name listed as the maintainer so I could push, pat push patches upstream a lot more easily, and then started contributing by doing basic cleanup in the hopes of redoing logically what had been done to split things up. These efforts have come to naught. Oh, I can feel this sigh when he writes this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in one final act of desperation, I copied the 3.1 based BSD user directory directly into the QMU 6.0 and got it building. There were lots of little changes I needed, but nothing super huge. I've not done extensive testing, but the basics seem to work. Trouble was that diff was 35,000 li lines, too big to upstream in one go. So I had to set out to see what could be done. First, I labeled the yeet it to current branch as blitz. It's a fast hack to get something we can move forward on. In future, releases and such will be cut from there until I can get into the upstream tree. Blitz is the German word for fast. Uh, can, you, can you fact check, Benedict? Oh, yes, of course, the blitz, yeah. Oh, it's like a lightning, lightning fast. <laughs> and, and has connotations. <laughs> and has connotations of doing something quick and dirty well enough to move on. Yeah. Next, I created another branch from 6.0 called Keizen. Keizen is the Japanese business practice of continuous improvement, uh, the, the other CI. Uh, find the most painful or most expensive part of your business, fix that and iterate. This branch, I'll be putting diff reduction patches for upstream, as well as start to move things over from Blitz, starting with the loader. I've disconnected everything except x86 from this branch. In upstream QEMU, BSD user core dumps right now, so I'm not turning off anything that's working. So the plan is that I'll focus on keeping x86 buildable and get it working as quickly as I can, and then add up all the system calls from the Blitz branch 
I'll add them one group at a time and do some reorgs and new file creation as well. I'll get these reviewed and upstreamed. Once all the system calls are in place, I'll finally start adding additional architectures as well and getting those patches reviewed. Finally, I'd like to get NetBSD and OpenBSD hosting stuff updated, as well as take a stab at updating their system call tables and see how well that works. The work that Stacy Sun and others tried to preserve all this, but it's a long story. It's been a long time since any of it was tested. He says he has a, an agreement in principle with Curium Upstream, which should hopefully make things easier. Um, and so, approximately monthly, he'll be landing a, a new branch with the latest diff reductions. I'll rebase Kaizen and Blitz after each drop and before I upstream. For the moment, this work will go into my GitLab fork since it has all the CI set up in it, the other CI. Uh, and from time to time, I'll publish back to GitHub QM user repository. Be advised, both Blitz and Kaizen branches will re rebase often, so you may need to do weird things to update. Though if you're tracking them with changes, please be in touch so we can coordinate work. With luck, by this time next year, Kaizen and Blitz branches will be nothing but a distant memory and we'll be on to keeping things up to date in QMU head, maybe with doing some refactoring with Linux user where it makes sense. Oh yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting what kind of projects uh, you know Warner takes on here and there, but definitely good work. And uh, I look forward to having a more updated version, the same as uh, the upstream has. Yeah, he doesn't. He didn't say in this post, but I think one of the the major benefits for this is it allows you to. Uh, you can run Pudier, Pudrier with QAMU user, uh, with BSD user, so you can do native builds of packages, but they're cross-built. So you're running all the, the you're running the native binaries rather than cross-compilers. Mm -hmm. I think I think I think that's one of the things it enables. Um, so it's really cool. Oh yeah, so that way people can, as you said, cross-compile on their non-free BSD box. Yeah, so I think you can end up with a jail, which is um, a different architecture, and it will all run. Okay, I hope that's right. For embedded work, especially uh, if you don't have the native hardware, then you can use this to um, speed up the compile. Or if the embedded platform that you have doesn't have such big horsepower uh, CPU memory, then you could do it on a beefier machine and cross-compile there. Yeah, I, I suspect this might be the path to uh, packages for Risk Five. That could very well be, yeah. But, but we'll see. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's okay. Definitely, we will watch this further, and uh, if there's updates on Warner's blog uh, on his progress, then we'll definitely cover it here. And so this is what it's going to be. Yeah, very nice. So now we have something interesting. Uh, FreeBSD 13, which recently-ish came out, on a 12-year-old laptop. Of course, you could do the reverse. You could also do FreeBSD 12 on a 13-year-old laptop, but that's beside the point. Uh, this is um, an article, and it starts with my old 2009 HP laptop now runs FreeBSD 13 release. Excellent. Uh, I don't do an upgrade, but I did a fresh install. Okay. The reason for this was that I now wanted to encrypt the hard disk. Previous install was an, an unencrypted ZFS file system. Yes, with FreeBSD 13, there came the OpenZFS 2.0, which includes the dataset encryption that a lot of people uh, were looking for. And so probably this motivated this change. So they did choose again for ZFS. Okay, because why not? Uh, but this time encrypted, yeah, as uh, I presumed. Uh, here are some specs of the laptop for those who uh, want to remember the 2009 uh, specs Core 2 Duo CPU L9400 at 1.86 gigahertz. 
eight gigabytes of RAM. Like a new uh, MacBook? Could, yeah, it could be. That, <laughs> <there's one. laughs> it sounds very familiar at some point. Eight gig of RAM. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was faster. That was a lot back then. Yeah. And it wasn't soldered in, mind you. So. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, 120 gigs of SSD. Yeah, it was already SSD. Uh, 1280 by 800 LCD 12 inch monitor, 4.3 by aspect ratio. So the 120 gig SSD is also not the newest. Uh, they bought this one. Uh, it's probably from around 2014 or 2015. Yeah, probably a hard disk may have died um, for that long. Okay, so definitely having an SSD helps. The laptop is built around an Intel chipset. So the graphics controller, audio, gigabit network interface, wireless, and so on, all are built with Intel chips and is still supported, right? We've been deprecating a lot of old hardware recently or are in the process of doing that. And so the drivers seem to still available, especially for this machine. Okay, so then they installed from the standard FreeBSD memstick image, eyes, uh, image, yeah, which went, of course, without any problems. Excellent. They used FreeBSD before on this laptop, so everything was quickly running smoothly. They installed a 915 resolution package. Oh, yes, that could be a problem. Yeah. And added the line to rc.conf, so that's the i915KMS uh, in the KLD list. Okay, good that it still was working. And so in order to get the sound working properly, they added two lines to slash boot slash devices.hints, and that is especially for this card or for this sound chip hint.adhc.0.cad0.nid18.config and then it's equal as equals one and seq equals 15 so that's very card specific but seems like it did make the sound yeah the, the card specifics is why freebsd can't configure it yeah that's what you have to configure in the config file because they cannot detect this in any way possible or not in the proper way so they're not sure if this is needed for this processor, but they also installed the dev CPU data and added two lines to the boot loader. Oh yes, the Intel uh, firmware updates may or may not uh, <laughs> had a problem back then. But yeah, never never hurts to add that. So the CPU microcode updates are loaded automatically when you boot. And for power management, they added the following lines to rc.conf. So power de-enable with the uh, adaptive, high adaptive when you're on power versus on a battery performance CX lowest uh, to C1 and econ economy CX lowest C max. And the last line to bootloader conf is ACPI underscore video underscore load. Yes, cool. Uh, so they have a dollar home and a RAM disk, and they write about that that they have to have their home directory in the RAM disk, the memory file system. This way, they always have a clean home and they don't want to worry about super cookies, cookies and other bad stuff like that. Okay. It's also, it also helps when you work with flash memory for local storage. Mm -hmm. FreeBSD doesn't have the brilliant dash capital P mount option that OpenBSD has, which will automatically set up your RAM disks. Okay, people, if you want to have this, uh, make a note for a little side project maybe. Uh, therefore, at boot time, the home directory is populated by a small shell script that is started from a startup script and use local etc rc.d. Uh, then they write about that they are using the i3 window manager and uh, at the time of setting everything up, they were in an unconfigured X setting. So as they were working through the default TWM window manager and the default settings for Xterm, including the default Xterm font, but seemed to have gone through it and yeah, did also manage to get a web browser going. Good enough for that. Uh, find Workstation, uh, they close the article with. They have been using this laptop with FreeBSD for some years now. 
yeah, before, not with FreeBSD 13 for years. <laughs> and they think it's a fine workstation, but they're not a gamer, of course. Yeah, that's not the uh, <laughs> best experience. Uh, in general, I prefer small laptops, and I think that 12-inch is the sweet spot. The keyboard is great, and I like the 4 by 3 aspect ratio of the monitor of this laptop. My most used applications are things like Ed, MG, BI, Vim, Emacs, Tmux, Lynx, and W3M. Well, you can do some work with that. Uh, they also use Firefox, LibreOffice, and GIMP. And most of the time, they're using SSH to connect to some remote system. Excellent. Yeah, this is your jump host to the wide world of uh, other machines. So if your needs are modest and you use FreeBSD, you don't need a fancy high-performance system. And my old laptop will do fine. And they actually also got the compression. They didn't write anything more about that, but seems like that was reason enough to make it... Uh, uh, update to FreeBSD 13. Nice. If if we release 14 in, in two years' time, it will be 14 on a 14-year-old laptop. Yeah, we would have to hope that the hardware doesn't die. <laughs> and so you can always repeat this experiment. Well, well it, Google tells me it's a 64-bit processor, so it, it, it might still be supported. Yeah, if we deprecate i386 and we go further back, then one day it, it gets complicated. <laughs> Okay, oh, it's time for the Beastie Bits now. And we have something interesting for the people that are interested in FreeBSD development because the registration is now open for the June 2021 FreeBSD Developer Summit. So again, this is usually happening in conjunction with uh, BSD CAN, but BSD CAN isn't happening. And so we thought it would be uh, not a good idea to not have a Dev Summit. And so that's why the FreeBSD Foundation and some other volunteers got together and organize this, and you can now register. You can find the link in the show notes on the FreeBSD's Twitter, of course. And we're also looking especially for people running a working group. Um, the call for working groups is still open. And uh, especially if you have a specific topic you want to talk about and get a couple people together to not just talk about it, but also provide solutions or come up with ways to you know, solve this kind of problem. So it's not a, oh, this is all not working on BSD and let's all complain about it. It's more like, hey, let's get together and solve this. And Yeah, uh, yeah. and the, the Developer Summit is on the 9th to the 11th of June. Yeah, and it's streamed. So um, they try to find a good time zone uh, for that. Um, but they try to repeat, if I'm, uh, if I'm hearing this correctly, to make it possible so that other people in other time zones have a Dev Summit of their own so that they can always... Um, have discussions, um, not have to do this at 3 a.m. in the morning or some crazy time. Um, so if you're interested, and I think they will also record many of these sessions. And so there will be a live stream. So you can, uh, if you don't participate, you can at least listen in and see what people are talking about. And that's a bigger way to open this Dev Summit because usually they are um, uh, required to have someone hosting you in a way that you kind of get invited. Uh, but this way you have a, um, a wider audience this way. And maybe that's giving also developers a way to get more in contact with the community that would normally not uh, participate. All right, next up, we have a, a heads up from the Dragonfly Digest, the uh, Dragonfly BSD 6.0 RC1 images are available and they, they have a link to the, the nearest mirror. And I'm, I'm sure they would love to have um, people come and test these and see how well they're working. 
Yeah, always good to have um, news from Dragonfly. Um, kind of bad to fill a, a BSD show with with just um, the free BSD content mostly, or from the major BSD if you want to call it that, NetBSD, OpenBSD, FreeBSD. Uh, so it's good that we hear a little bit about Dragonfly BSD when there's something to report. Then we have lexical file names in Plan Nine or getting dot dot right. Uh, here's a PDF uh, that's from Rob Pike uh, from the original Bell Labs. And it talks about uh, symbolic links, uh, make the Unix file system, at least from the abstract, uh, make the Unix file system non-hierarchical, resulting in multiple valid path names for a given file. This ambiguity is a source of confusion, especially since most shells work over time to present a consistent view from programs such as PWD, while other programs and the kernel itself do nothing about the problem. And so there's that's a whole paper with um, a couple of examples that describe the problem and how Plan 9 tries to solve it. And yeah, so if you're interested in that, check out the full paper. I think this was um, presented at a conference, maybe, uh, I don't know, it doesn't say here, but I'm fairly sure it um, gives you some interesting insights into um, yeah, Plan 9. All right, next up we have a second Plan 9 story, uh, which is it's always good to see, especially now they've been relicensed. Um, and it's part of the untold history of UTF-8. And it's uh, an email thread um, explaining how uh, Rob Pike and Ken Thompson invented UTF-8 in one evening and how together they built the first system-wide implementation in less than a week. And I'll just read from the start of it because it's quite long. Looking around at some UTF-8 background, I see the same incorrect story being repeated over and over. The incorrect version is IBM designed UTF-8, Plan 9 implemented it. That's not true. UTF-8 was designed in front of my eyes on a placemat in a New Jersey diner one night in September 1992 or so. And then he goes on to, to talk through the, the, the status at the time when IBM were working on UTF with a 16-bit code um, and how it was then um, that the idea for UTF-8, the multi-byte encoding sequence, was, was dreamed up and incorporated into um, Plan 9. And there's a whole thread about how they came up with the byte encoding and, and why and there's even examples of source code and how they hack things together. And it's a, it's a great read. Mm. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Uh, and the uh, Undeadly website, always writing about OpenBSD, lets us know that the initial support for the RISC, uh, RISC-V64 architecture is uh, happening in OpenBSD. And they provide the commit message. Uh, Dale Ron imported the initial support for the 64-bit RISC-V architecture. So OpenBSD is available, at least in an initial form, on this as well. Uh, so this work is based on the effort of a um, porting OpenBSD paper. Um, yeah, porting OpenBSD to RISC-V, ISA, uh, by Brian Bumsch, Venyan He, Mars Lee, and Shivam Vagela, uh, with additional work by Dale Ran, who committed it to OpenBSD. So yeah, he writes congratulations and thanks to all involved. Uh, so we'll definitely see more um, of RISC-V, if I'm not mistaken. And it's nice to see that uh, OpenBSD and probably other BSDs will uh, use and support this architecture. Very nice. Ah, yes. Uh, before we go into our feedback and questions, we should talk about our sponsor for this week, which is Tarsnap. Tarsnap is your one-stop online backup for the truly paranoid people. If you are not doing backups yet, then you should definitely consider using Tarsnap or giving it a try. So you start off with creating an account and charge a very low account initially 
uh, $5 that will give you a, a lot of storage um, space or place to uh, store your data. So what Tarsnap basically provides is uh, an infrastructure to back up your data and retrieve it. And it does it all encrypted. And you, during the setup, you create a key, which is your key to the castle, really. And that is used to encrypt your data. But it's not just the encryption. It's also uh, segmenting your file. So you say, I want to back up my monthly bills, or I want to back up my most important files that I don't want to lose. And the Tarsnap software analyzes this data and figures out, oh, what are the unique blocks in there? And can it compress it to a certain level that it's less than the original size? And this is all happening on your machine, not connecting to the network yet. And once that has all happened and the encryption is done, then it's signed and sent off to uh, the Tarsnap cloud, which is hosted on Amazon. And there it sits encrypted until the time it's needed. And if you're doing uh, regular backups, like every hour, every day, any kind of uh, backup scheme you are uh, implementing, then it also knows about what's already on there. So it doesn't have to send everything over every time. So it only sends the, the deltas or the, the, the things that have changed in the data, if there was any change. And that way, it solves you um, the storage space problem. And it also makes it very cheap. And this way, one day, if you need your data, back, it's copied using the same client software, and it's copied and unencrypted as long as you hold the personal key. If you lose the key, then even the Tarsnap folks cannot help you retrieve your data. It's still encrypted, and no one else can make heads and tails of it. So that's why you always need the key to unencrypt your data, and um, that's the way to restore. And it's very interesting and fairly easy to use software. And it's available for all the Unix and Windows systems out there you can think of, as well as Microsoft, um, the, the Sequins. But I don't think you don't need this for long now, because I, I've seen that the PowerShell has done a lot of good work recently, um, so that a lot of Unix-like environments and commands are supported. So Tarsnap runs on uh, the BSDs, the Linuxes, the Mac OS, Sequin, any kind of um, environment you can think of. There are custom clients available if you want to GUI around it. So that's done by third party. The paranoid part is it's not just the encryption. It's also if you don't trust the people providing you the backup service, you can look into the source code and how it's built. And that's what Tarsnap gives you also. They also have a bug bounty program for things you might uh, find, any bugs, any security issues, even uh, typo errors or stuff in their, config, in their documentation. And so um, Tarsnap is really a good way of getting your backups done and without having to worry about, oh, will anyone else be able to unencrypt my uh, data that I'm backing up into a cloud? Okay, so that's about Tarsnap. And let's go into our feedback and questions for this week. We've received backup, uh, well, backup questions, of course, um, but we could use more feedback and questions for future episodes. So the address to send this to is feedback at bsdnow.tv. And we should start maybe with the first one, uh, which is from Hamza. And that goes, uh, congrats on 400. They mean our 400th episode. And it goes, hi, BSD Now team. You have been a great influence. Thank you. Listening to the podcast, not only did I start using FreeBSD and OpenBSD every day for various projects, 
I adopted or ported BSDisms to my Linux heavy day job. Hey, that's interesting. 400 episodes is a great milestone. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, your hard work is appreciated and obviously making an impact. Keep doing the awesome work you're doing. Thank you. With thanks from a regular listener. Wow, isn't that great to, to have this kind of impact to have people, you know, slowly looking at the BSDs more and more and uh, finding that there's uh, something of value in there. Okay, next up, we have a, a question from Renato Aquino. Uh, and they say, hello, BSD Now team. They, they say Alan and Benedict, but it's easier this way. Uh, you too. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get used to that. <laughs> Although I'm not a, a FreeBSD user, I've been tuned on the show for some years now. It's a great source of information about the BSD world. Helping you guys with the lack of questions, I'd like to ask a couple of things. A few years ago, I tried to write a kernel module for the Ether switch found in the Lamobo R1 or BananoPy R1 SBC. Although unfruitful, pushing the limits of my C knowledge, learning about the kernel internals and hardware discovery flow was a great exercise. While doing this, I noticed that on these SBCs, it usually relies on the open firmware device tree definitions. I've searched for an official documentation about it, and by that time, wasn't able to find anything. Like something to help me understand some of the details of device trees, like the mix of header files with device structure. Is there a place you guys recommend to learn this? I'm curious if this will end up in the FreeBSD documentation now that ARCH64 is a tier one architecture. Uh, so I, I, I looked around and there are man pages for FDT, which is flattened device tree. Uh, so Renato's question is about the the way embedded um, platforms and, and PowerPC discovered hardware. It wasn't through ACPI, which is a, is used in, in x86 machines. It is instead a statically compiled blob that is maybe on an SD card or, or in Flash. Um, and it just lays out all the files that are there. And so if you've ever done, done any hardware hacking, you might have come across this. Um, and they ask if there's more documentation. The the whole open firmware flattened device tree thing is a, a maze that is easy to get lost in. There's documentation in FreeBSD in the man pages. I don't think there's anything in the handbook. There's documentation on the wiki, but I think most of that was tracking implementation and it sort of expired as things were implemented. Uh, and there's really good documentation in the OS dev wiki and and some other places online. The Linux kernel actually has quite good documentation about this, but in the end, I think you just pick up the little bits you need to know and then you hide from the rest of it because it's very complicated. Could also be that there was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a talk about FTT once at the BSD conference. You could check uh, papers.freebsd.org if there's something in there. Okay, and then their their second question. I know that jails are an awesome piece of software that I've seen usage f as far as 1998. With all the hype that Docker had, I was hoping that with the definition of container D, some of the tooling and usefulness of an image repository would land on FreeBSD as well. I've looked after container D implementations for FreeBSD, but all that I could find relies on ZFS as the layered file system and nothing about UFS implementations. Are there any official efforts to implement container D on FreeBSD that you guys are aware of? Well, earlier in the show, we we reported on some work on uh, run J and the I think the person behind this also has a similar project that we might cover in the future. Um, I understand that they use ZFS still for doing the copy on write um, and I'm not aware of any efforts for, for UFS. Yeah, it could very well be that that uh, what we covered earlier is not too specific to the file system or not to FreeBSD ZFS specific. Um, so it could be, uh, we need to check this. I further. don't think our, our UFS has copy on write, but I, I could genuinely not be right. 
Yeah, it doesn't. Um, not in the way ZFS does it. Um, oh, let's not push Kirk too much <laughs> implementing that. Um, I'm not too sure myself, um, but especially Containerd has been asked for um, for a while, and maybe this is a way um, to make it, um, yeah, be used more now that we have something. Okay, um, that's what we have for that answer. And uh, next, then we have Rob with a music question. You're like, what BSD and music? Oh no, it's a short thing, and it's kind of relevant to this podcast. Um, so. Rob writes, uh, yes, really love your podcast. Thank you. Like the high energy song you start them with too. Would you like to hear or would like to hear the whole of it? May I ask, where can I, where can it be found? So I, so I, I asked, uh, I, I asked JT, uh, the, the producer, um, if there was a whole sample. And JT says, the music isn't from an existing song and it just, it is just short segments for the intro, outro and stingers. It was commissioned for the show and only consists of the bits we use. Yeah, so this was commissioned work. So really, we kind of <laughs> at the start before even my time, um, they picked that, and so that's what we ran with it, and it's still the one we use nowadays. But yeah, it's it's kind of the thing we use all the time, and we had never thought about that people would be interested in uh, that kind of music. But yeah, why not? I used it uh, as a wake up uh, sound for a long time at a conference or at BSD conferences, so that. I get reminded or woken up with the familiar BST intro music. You're a sadist. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it definitely wakes me up. And now that I'm part of the show, it has a special meaning to me. And uh, <laughs> I've switched to other sounds to wake me up now. But it's still in the library in case I need to go back to it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that pretty much wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for listening and providing feedback. We will be back with more interesting news as always next week. 